Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing, I'm Peter Switzer and on tonight's program we talk to fund manager St Wong of Prime Value Asset Management who offers three stocks that look like good value. And then Morgan stockbroker Raymond Chan reveals what stocks the broker's research team likes right now. And then the founder of Century 21, Charles Tarby, says he sees market signs that these price rise predictions of 17% nationwide ignore some signs he's seeing there out in the coalface that says that the heat is coming out of some of these really hot real estate markets. And finally, Ying Yi and Cheng of Coolabar Capital looks at the outlook for interest rates and property prices, and she's far more optimistic than Charles Tarby. That's the show ahead, so let's kick off with the very smart fund manager, St Wong. Joining me now is St Wong from Prime Value Asset Management. And the reason why I want to talk to St Wong is because he has a different investment style compared to some of the fund managers that I've talked to over the years who are particularly momentum type fund managers where um, obviously uh, ST looks for value and this is a time when value stocks are coming into favour. Great to see you ST. Morning Pete, how have you been? Very good mate, very good indeed, great to see you. Now let's, let's explain to my viewers what is your investment style? Well, Pete, um, yeah, definitely we're looking for value in the marketplace, but clearly with uh, a growth tilt. So we like companies which are held by great management teams, good business models, when we can see growth for the next uh, two or three years. And within that, we do like to look for value. And that's clearly what uh, the point of our discussion is this morning. Yeah. For people who don't know the difference between a growth stock and a value stock, I think growth stocks are pretty easy to understand. But if you like, give us a comparison, growth versus value stocks. Well, Pete, um, a great, I guess, a great value stock, uh, a great growth stock to start with will be companies which are uh, having growth rates of 20, 30%, and say zero would be a typical growth stock that yeah. people be, investors will be looking at. So typically high growth companies, uh, ability to grow really quickly for the next couple of years. But on the flip side, on value, uh, on value stocks, the companies such as Adelaide Brighton, which uh, produces cement, um, are typically uh, tied to the economic cycle. Um, these are typically lowly valued stock on you know low P valuations, for example. So that gives a contrast. One, very quickly growing stocks, but typically on high P valuations. On the other side, value, typically low valuations or cheap valuations. Mm -hmm and very tight to the economy. In this case, Adelaide Brighton to the oil economy, so to speak. Yeah, but of course there are gray areas where some stocks are, are growth stocks at times. I think our banks have been growth stocks at times, but other times, like in recent times, they look more like a value stock because their PE went down, the government was forcing them to rescue the economy, so their whole business model was changed. The Hain Royal Commission you know, got, got stuck into them, but all of a sudden their share price has taken off and people who saw them as a value stock really did pretty well. Absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, the point where banks started to tra trade below the book value, that was back in September, when was September 2020, mm. uh, that was a great trigger point to start looking at banks as a value play. And they had a great run in the last uh, four to five months. Yeah. 
Okay, so tell us the stocks that are now on your radar screen that you think mm. look like good value over time. Well, the interesting thing, Pete, in this market, there seems to be something for everyone, mm. uh, not just in the value bucket, but also in the growth bucket. And that's what we've been uh, looking at the last uh, couple of months, especially through the reporting season uh, just passed. So uh, what came to our, our radar screen, I guess, um, kind of three key stocks. Um, and as I said, there's one, for, there's something for everyone. Um, brokers, uh, insurance broker, uh, market capitalization of roughly about 1.4 billion. And as the name suggests, uh, they are brokers between uh, big, the big insurance companies, QBD, Sharp, um, and AIG, the global guys, and the uh, small and medium-sized uh, companies that's operating the cafe down the road. So there are real intermediaries, uh, but we we kind of view it as a steady compounder. It's just being able to grow the profits very steadily, uh, year after year, you know, 10, 15% growth, nothing too spectacular, but very strong, steady growth. And we, we put, put us brokers as a steady compounder. And from our opinion, um, we're still trading at cheap levels, P of about 20 times, uh, roughly about market levels, uh, yielding about 2.8%, not too high, but with clear growth prospects um, in the next couple of years. Okay. And that's been, I guess, the bucket where you're looking for steady growth, decent yield, but still trading at a decent valuation. Osbrook kind of, kind of fits the bill. Okay, so that's Osbrook. Osbrook, yeah. On the flip side, um, our value stocks, which is kind of what we've been talking about just earlier, and United Malt Group, uh, I think falls into a group of what we call value stock. Now it's been clearly unloved since it was demerged from Grain Corp uh, roughly about, you know, uh, I think it was early 2020. So the, the merger has brought about uh, one of the major maltsters in the world, the fourth largest, mm. Um, in the world, but um, it is actually uh, one of the largest in North America. And so United, United Malt Group is one where uh, we think is in the value bucket, trading about 18 times, yielding about 3.2% at this juncture, uh, but has been hampered by the COVID-19 situation. Yeah. So people have been going to uh, fewer, a few visit to pubs, uh, people have been drinking less alcohol, which is what malt is, is used for uh, effectively. Events, large events, sporting events has been shut. So consumption of beer uh, in uh, US uh, sporting events has been, has been decimated basically. Mm -hmm. So has been affected dramatically by COVID-19, but reopen, clearly I think side for a company such as, such as United Malt Group, uh, will be quite interesting from that perspective. Yeah. So unappreciated in a value bucket and as economies start to reopen, uh, we think United Malt Group will come to investors' attention in the next 12 months. Okay, now that's a, a local company, but with a big export market, obviously exposure in the US. Absolutely. Mm. So global operator, fourth largest monster in the world, number one in the United States, and we think uh, malting or what UMG does is a scale game. You want to be the biggest player in the market and optimize the logistics of malting for your clients. Yeah. In this case, brewers, 
uh, in North America. In yeah. That sense. And the classic story, and classic story is that it's also part of the reopening trade as the world economy opens up and gets back to normal. Its uh, potential to grow its uh, its footprint grows as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. Okay. And you know, Pete. Finally, I think in the growth bucket, and I said there's something for everyone in the market in the yeah. growth growth bucket. Yeah. We've come through the reporting season really positive on pinnacle investments. Um, pinnacle investments is a, I guess, uh, has been steadily building a composite group of fund managers across uh, different asset classes over a number of years. And we found management just be really forward looking, highly motivated to build a group of assets that will grow into future, uh, string at 25 uh, times earnings, uh, yielding about 3.5%. Uh, uh, but we think that the latent value in this company, which we, we believe is, is a growth path, resides in the group's ability uh, to maximize its asset distribution capability, or I guess, funds management distribution capability into Australia, but into international institutional market as well. Mm. So that's growth, growth stock that we like um, at this juncture. So as I said, um, something for everyone, growth, value, but also steady compounders with finding value in, in this market. So with Pinnacle, just explain to people who don't know exactly what it does, and th there's been stories around in recent years that Asia is again, some of our financial institutions and uh, our financial businesses. That, is it attracting inflows from Asia? Uh, no, that's that's an interesting point. So Pinnacle as a, as a fund managers, simplistically, mm. um, across a number of asset classes. So this juncture is probably about 16 to 17 fund managers it has invested through, mainly based in Australia, um, ranging from Hyperion um, to Fire Trail, some of these names your investors might be in, um, have knowledge of. But largely at this juncture, uh, Australian fund managers, but increasingly offshore as well, yeah. disputing into the Australian market, both retail and institutional, but also increasingly international, uh, I guess, market, so to speak. Yeah. So the flows are coming through, not just in Asia, uh, but certainly from North America and Europe as well. Mm -hmm. So quite a wide distribution uh, channel coming through, and we're starting to see that flow coming through uh, across a number of channels, not just based in Asia, but certainly in So, so in, in a way, it's created a business model based on the old fund of funds. In some ways, absolutely. Mm. The key uh, um, in this business is its great distribution capabilities, which is basically what it's leveraging. Mm. Um, and of course, talent. Mm. So the sort of managers it's been picking up has been doing really well uh, in the last six to uh, 12 months, and that's been helping uh, the ability to distribute the funds as well. Great stuff. ST Wong, thanks for joining us. Talk to you in a month's time. Thanks, Pete. Have a good day. Well, joining me now on the show now is Raymond Chan. He's a stockbroker with Morgans and has access to research of that respective broker. So let's just see what stocks are on Ray's radar screen right now. That's hard to say, Ray's radar screen. Good to see you, Ray. <laughs> yeah, well, it's good to see you, Peter. It's yeah. been a while. It has yeah. been a while. 
Uh, tell us about what are the, the stocks that you guys are liking right now? Uh, if we talk about the stocks, and we also have to talk about the factor mm. that may affect the Australian market. Mm. Uh, first of all, you know, I think there's three key factors we really have to look at yep. in terms of the, you know, the, the Australian stock market. Number one, of course, is the, uh, the vaccine rollout. The number two factor is the bond yield. Yep. And the number three, it become a more increasing factor is the emerging of the ESG theme. The what? The ESG, the Environmental Sustainability yeah, yeah, and Governance. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. So I guess, first of all, you know, with the uh, vaccine rollout, you know, if we look at the US and UK, it usually took, took about uh, 60 days to get what it call a peak daily vaccination. Mm. So if we assume the herd immunity to be about 80% of the population, and if we translate the experience into Australia, we think Australia will be in a position to reopen by, say, toward the end of October. Mm. You mean totally reopen and basically have business back to normal like it was before we mentioned the word pandemic? Exactly. Because yeah. we already are reopened and we've done very well compared to other countries. But you're saying back to normal. Yeah, this is, I guess, you know, what the herd immunity will be important to yep. give the people the confidence yep. to go back out there and to live as usual. Mm. But of course, there, there will be challenges. Mm. The second, I guess, factor we look at is the bond yield. Mm. Uh, we all know that, you know, the, over the past few weeks, the long data bond yield been going continue high and higher. Mm. However, the short data bond yield mm. continue to be depressed very low yeah. because of the QE. So what we are seeing now the is... QE being the quantitative easing. Ladies and gentlemen, let me explain some of the, the inside information that Ray <laughs> talks about. QE, and that's the Reserve Bank basically saying, we want rates to stay low and we will buy bonds and keep them low. Exactly. Yeah. And in this case, the central bank are targeting the short dated, you know, two to five years, yeah. um, you know, bonds. They deliberately buy those bonds and keep the yield really, really low. Yeah. So we are seeing what we call yield curve look like this, mm. more and more steepling. Yep. So the steepling nicely of the, done, right? Nicely yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. look, look like a slide, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the steepling of the yield curve are likely to benefit the financial stocks, especially the bank. Yeah. Uh, so you asked me about what stocks do I like. I certainly like the banks. Mm. The reason uh, behind is, you know, you, we all know that the banks are mm. lending the money yep. for long term, such as mortgage yeah. in, 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 a, in a period of like 20, 30 years. Mm. But the bank also borrow money, mm. they borrow from us mm. as a deposit. Mm. At very low rates. Yeah, almost zero, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So um, the, the bank, the source of funds is very cheap mm. and they are getting high and high return yeah. on the mortgage. That's why the bank likely to do well. Yeah. Despite, you know, and they're starting to pay dividends, which also will attract investors who want dividends. Agree. So the, the, the bank like, you know, Westpac, you know, on the projected yield of mm. about 5%. Um, last year, during the, the worst of the COVID, you know, the whole market, even, even Westpac themselves, mm. they think there will be a lot of default. Yeah. However, that provision now likely to be rolled back. They haven't really done so at the moment, yeah. but that likely to be a time where they will roll back. The more they roll back, the more cash flow that will be allow for yeah. dividend paying. Yeah, effectively increases their profit. Exactly. Mm. So the, the, the third point, I guess, is the ESG. Yeah. So, uh, so it's, no, it's, it's decode that. It's ethical. 
uh, is it, so is uh, environmental, yeah. um, environmental, environmental sustainability, yeah. and governance. Sustainability and governance. Yeah. S E S G. So why that become more and more important? Uh, I I find it quite shocking when uh, I talk to some of the European funds. Mm. Uh, they will start before I present any stock idea. They will think, you know, are they ESG friendly? Mm. I.e., are they involved in any like fossil fuel that type of investment? Yeah. Because obviously there may be a you know potential regulation from the Europe mm. that you know you have to have a principle or policy in place uh, for ESG investing. Yeah, and that could kill a share price if a company is, is blackballed. Exactly, mm. and also when I look at the Google search, <coughs> there has been a significant surge in ESG uh, work card uh, since pretty much from the end of last year, mm. and it continues to shoot higher. Yeah. I think younger investors are getting the market, and younger investors care about ESG. Agree. So, so uh, as a result, I think that will become a dominant uh, one of the dominant factor for the Australian share market. Okay. So you've covered those three themes. You've mentioned the banks as a good buy. You like Westpac. Um, what other companies do you like then? Uh, another one, which funny enough is a ESG neutral company, mm. is NextDC. Mm. So yeah. next DC, I talk about it like five years ago. Mm. At that time, it was pretty new. Mm. Now next DC, next DC um, uh, just just to refresh, this is a, a neutral data center mm. operator in Australia. Yeah. You can think it's big more factory full of the stuff that makes the cloud work. Exactly, and you need a lot of energy, a lot of water for mm. cooling purpose. Yeah. Um, you uh, and. This is more like a popular play, mm. but you just have to spend a lot of money. So it's highly capital intensive. Yeah. Um, and remember how they work is they rely on people moving from the day-to-day -day operation in paper-based, or they store the, the data in-house yeah. into cloud. Yeah. And the biggest customers is got to be the enterprise and the government, and the trend will, will likely to be continued. Yeah. Uh, why I like it at the moment is because obviously the, there has been a bit of Price correction, along with you know, other other high tech stocks, mm. um, they they. That's a buying opportunity, you're saying. I, I think I think the weakness can present as a buying opportunity yeah. for next DC. Ray, I, I heard a, a presenter last week from uh, that uh, US fund WCM, mm. and one of the things uh, the guy said was, digitization is in its infancy, and that staggered me. It meant that the we're seeing all these digital disrupting businesses. But from his point of view, and other people agree, the digitization of the world is in its infancy. And next DC is like the highway upon which these digital businesses operate, aren't they? Because the cloud is it. So it's really well positioned over time. Agree. Mm. Over 50% of the enterprise and government are yet to move into cloud. Mm. It can t you can tell you know, there's an opportunity out there. However, you know, a, a word of warning for you know, any investor who may be interested in NextDC. NextDC is a growth company. Mm. They are not in a position to pay any dividend. Yeah. With any cash flow that they may have, it's more likely they're going to invest into a new operator, yeah. into a new data center. Yeah, okay. Ne next one. You're, you're getting away with only two. I'm more than that. <laughs> well, if, if we have to think about uh, the next one, I probably would think of a pretty boring one. Yeah, good. MCOR. Yeah. Emco is a company that you know they were here in the 80s, 90s, and likely to be here for the mm. next 30 years. Yeah. Box company, aren't box they? company, mm. packaging. Yeah. Um, so why why do we like this sort of company? First of all, you know they have good cash flow. Mm. With the packaging company, how do they? I guess how do they grow? Mm. They have lots of cash flow, 
by but the business are pretty predictable. The cash flow is pretty pre predictable. Mm. Like Mcom, many of their business, many of the customers, uh, the healthcare, um, the the uh, the ba uh, bakery um, and the uh, living essential that mm. type of customers. Mm. They collect all this cash flow and then they will invest to acquire the competitor. Mm. That's how they grow. Mm. So MCOR been trading sideways for a while. Uh, being a defensive business, I can still see they have the ability to grow. Mm. Why? Because over the past about seven months, they upgrade their earnings three times. Mm. So what seems to be a headwind and why the stocks is not moving yeah. is because of the falling of uh, US dollars. Yeah. So dollar up. US dollar yeah. and most of their businesses in the US nowadays, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. on a global basis. Yeah. Uh, you know, th this is a company where, you know, the I would see the currency as, as a, you know, short-term headwind and mm. I think you know, the US dollars won't be go down forever. Yeah. As long as the company continue to do what they're doing yeah. and deliver on their promise, I think this is a good company. Yeah. And Ray, I would have thought also they're advantaged by the fact that because of the coronavirus, more and more people are buying stuff online. And when that stuff online is delivered, it comes in a box. And these guys make boxes. Exactly. That's yeah. why they still believe there will be earning growth. Yeah. Uh, while it's more like an inflation plus, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, earning growth rather than, you know, some high tech company where they promise a lot of revenue growth. Mm. They never have earnings. So, uh, you know, this is a, the type of company where I feel very comfort comfortable, mm. you know, in a portfolio if I want to collect yeah. some decent dividends. Yeah, and it's a core um, stock. It's not a stock you hold for a couple of years and get rid of it. It's a core one. Agreed. Okay, that's Raymond Chan from Morgan's. Well, joining me now is Charles Tarby, the founder of Century 21 here in Australia and New Zealand. And uh, Charles, thanks for coming on the program. Now, the Thank reason why I wanted to talk to you today, there was a report in the newspaper saying that um, the Kiwis, they're really worried about house prices. They've slammed the tax on investors um, and they're making it harder for people to get money. Uh, and of course, the house prices over there have been rising faster than here in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, they okay. have. So yes, they have. Let's yeah. try and understand do you think we need the kind of measures right now that the Kiwis are looking at? And what do you think of those measures? I think they're already uh, under underfoot, mm. to be very frank, because um, I've watched uh, how quickly the prices jump, and they, they, they should have jumped. They should have jumped to where they were uh, prior to the Royal Banking Com uh, Commission. Mm. I always get that wrong, Peter. But prior to the, the uh, Royal Commission into banking occurred. Uh, and, and so the prices came back and they just jumped a bit more because interest rates are substantially mm. lower than what they were, but not only that, stock levels were lower. And so all of those things are starting to change. I can't call interest rates yet, but I can definitely call stock uh, coming onto the market as changing. I can definitely say to you from personal experience, watching some of my clients, that the banks are being a lot more difficult. And I can also say to you that if I was a valuer right now, I'd be a little gun shy. So I, I think those things are already afoot in the real estate market so in Australia. When you see predictions that house prices over the next two years will rise by 20 to 30%, do you think that is way over the mark? I think it's not unreasonable to consider when you're talking about a few years, uh, that it rising, you know, five or 6% mm. 
every year over the next few years, which could bring it to 20 or 25 percent. I don't see that as being unreasonable. Uh, what, what I see right now is, of course, those people who are making these predictions, I don't know who, who they are, but the predictions that have been made in the past have been made by analysts and not people at the coalface. And so they've gotten really, really wrong. Um, I can see the real estate market climbing, uh, but I see it settling down or, or, or coming to a little bit of a, a full stop for a very short period of time mm. until it balances out. That I can so see right now. You also have businesses in New Zealand. I'm right in saying that. Has yeah. a, I have heard stories about uh, prices in Auckland really going through the roof. Have they, have they been much bigger than, say, Sydney and Melbourne? In some cases, yes, uh, Peter. And, and uh, a few of the officers I've spoken to themselves have, have expressed concern at how quickly the prices have risen. But, you know, we're in two very safe countries away from a lot of the problems that are occurring around the rest of the, rest of the world. And if you had money and you could buy in these countries, if it was possible for you to buy easily in Australia and New Zealand, you would. And New Zealand had a lot more open market in terms of its international buyers. Mm. It was a lot more flexible than uh, Australia. And so I think that there'd be more people coming in from uh, overseas or buying even online than there would be in Australia because it's a lot yeah, easier. Yeah, because the story to today su suggested that it was investors uh, were buying, I think, 40% of uh, sales in New Zealand in recent times have been investors. That's not the case in Australia. Investors aren't all that strong right at the moment, are they? No, no definitely not as strong because they're not getting the opportunity. If you look at the, at the government grant that uh, was put forward last year and still in place, albeit uh, a little less in, in the amount, uh, all of a sudden people that were renting uh, could realise that they could buy a property and they could buy it and pay less than what they're paying in rent and still own a home. So you have a massive amount of people. Everywhere you turn, you go to all through the subdivisions, you see all the vacant land, all that's got sold, stickers on it. Uh, the builders are run off their feet. They're rejecting jobs in some cases if it's all too hard, if the block of land is a little bit uh, slopey. Some of the builders are saying, no, it's not for us. And so when you've got that sort of situation, yeah, the investors don't get a chance because the prices have moved a little bit too quickly for an investor. Uh, and so I also am concerned from that perspective that the vacancy rate's going to climb quite considerably in those areas where people were renting and have now been yeah. in a position to buy. Yeah. They're, they're going to move out and those places yeah, and are going to become I, vacant. I guess if the vacancy rates go up, the potential rents go down and, that, and, and that's a, a great, Correct. another disincentive for investors. I can tell you that already, Pete. When I look at the, the rental movement across uh, the region, I can tell you that, and, and I go back to five years ago with my data, January 2015, or is that six years? Maybe I can't count properly. Uh, if, if you look at uh, the data there, it's particularly in, in New South Wales, particularly in Sydney, it's actually gone back. This is a point that I made on Ben Fordham's program on GB this morning and also in my own Switzer Daily that, that in many ways, uh, Sydney house prices, I think statistically, are only up about 1.3% since about 2017. So we really, even though we're rising quickly now, in terms of uh, over a time period, the house price rises aren't all that great. No, no, they're not. But, but Peter, look, a, a lot of the the information that goes out into the marketplace is is not real time. 
that's part of the problem that, that people aren't seeing. There's a lot more real-time data than there used to be a few years ago, but it's still not the case. What you're not hearing or what you're not reading in the papers is that when an agent decides that a property is not going to go to auction on last Saturday and they're going to sell it before auction, when that starts to happen, and that's already started to happen on a number of occasions, you're starting to see that the pullback from buyers or the potential buyers or the, the ability for, for buyers to borrow beyond their capacity mm. is changing quite significantly. And that's where you see the change. I mean, people say, well, the prices continue. And I, and I look at this and I go, well, gee, five properties were sold before auction last week just in one area alone. And that tells me that the agent wasn't comfortable about the fact that yeah. it would sell at auction. That is an indication that prices are staying to Get, starting to be yeah. challenged. So, so you would use that as a historical indicator that the power that's driving prices up is starting to dissipate. Correct. The stock levels uh, in, in the last 12 weeks have climbed. The, the amount of stock that's advertised for sale has climbed every single week for the last 12 weeks. If I go back um, three months ago, the amount of property advertised for sale was just over 40% less than the same period mm. uh, the year before. And when I look today, the amount of stock advertised today, quite it's, it's quite a considerable difference. All of a sudden, you're finding the amount of stock advertised today compared to this time last year is negative 17.33%. So there's been a turnaround of 23% in the last 12 weeks over the period, the 12 months before. I know that sounds like mumbo-jumbo, but yeah. you, you well, get what you, I mean. You're, right? you're a champion at mumbo-jumbo. That's why you're such a great real estate agent. <laughs> just joking, <laughs> just joking. So yeah. I, I think the, the, the final message then is this, that even though you believe that house prices could easily rise over the next few years, what we're seeing now, and often is reported, I guess, is they concentrate on some suburbs which, is, which are unbelievably hot, but if you go right across, say, Sydney and right across Melbourne, the actual rate of house price rises is starting to slow down, albeit still rising. Correct. And, and that's not what people are seeing because the headlines are, you know, 400,000 over reserve. Oh, property mm. sold for 20 million the other day and the reserve is going to be 15. That, that's what you're, you're only hearing that. You're not hearing what I've just said about, you know, that some properties yeah. are not going to auction. Why aren't they going to auction? You go to auction. If, if you've got uh, a number of buyers, you go to auction because that's going to be to the benefit of the seller. So why are they selling before auction? What is happening that's making this change? So for me, banks are getting tougher. Uh, again, uh, they're asking about your Netflix account and how many cups of coffee you have. Valuers should start to get gun-shy. Stock levels are climbing. Our, our economy is, is fantastic at the moment, but if there's a hiccup elsewhere or if if other countries decide to increase their rates, do you think we're going to sit still? Charles Tarby so. from uh, Century 21, thanks for joining us. Well, a lot of people are worried about the bond market and what it means for interest rates and even the stock market. And uh, one person I know who is very, very much intimately connected to the bond markets is Ying Yi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital. Great to see you, Ying Yi. Great to catch up, Pete. Okay, so a lot of people are really worried and spooked about the bond market, but you, know, you live and breathe the bond market 24-7. I don't think you ever think about anything else but the bond market. So 
<laughs> well, probably you do, but I don't like to think you do. And, and look, I, I think a lot of us would love an expert view on what you think's going on in the bond market right now and what's the likely implication for interest rates. And, I, and I'm going to follow it up with the question, you know, can the central banks sort of beat, beat up on the bond markets for a time or not? So first part of the question, what's going on in the bond market? Yeah, so there has been quite a bit of a bloodbath in um, bond markets. And when we do refer to bond markets, really generically, it's actually referring to fixed rate bonds. Um, so, you know, if you look at a fixed income portfolio, um, they might have fixed rate bonds um, and they'll have interest rate duration, which means, um, which is defined as the sensitivity of that portfolio or that bond to changes in interest rate. So you need to bear in mind that the bloodbath that we have seen has been in with um, any bonds that have any fixed rate risk or any portfolios that have any fixed rate risk or interest rate duration. Mm. Um, and that's been indeed the case. However, let's just remember that if you are invested in floating rate bonds um, or floating rate notes or portfolios that are floating rate, then you haven't been exposed to this sort of bloodbath that we yeah. saw last month in February. Um, and what we've really seen is, um, and that's really just been guided by market expectations of interest rates. So obviously we know that cash rates are extremely low right now. Yeah. Um, and you know, central banks, whether it be the RBA, the Fed, the ECB, have committed to low rates and quantitative easing. So they're not in a hurry to hike rates anytime soon, but obviously the market's smart, right? People aren't thinking about just the here and now. They're thinking about what's going to happen in the future. And obviously, you know, this kind of kicked off given that we've had so much monetary policy stimulus over the last, you know, year since we had, you know, COVID and obviously the central banks needed to respond to that. Um, but also in particular with Biden um, in the US being appointed as the president and that, you know, we're talking that circle, you know, more than $1.7 trillion stimulus package that he's going to sort of roll through. Um, and so in that respect, if you think about the amount of stimulus or money going into the economy, um, and then you add that to all the monetary policy stimulus that we're seeing already, then that's a lot of stimulus. What does that mean? Well, it means economic growth, which is a good thing. And that's the whole point, right? Yep. The whole point of fiscal and monetary policy stimulus is for growth. Um, the implications of you know growth um, becomes inflation as that market gets quite tight. Um, and so the market is expecting that reflation trade. So not inflation right here and now, but inflation down the track. And they see that with central banks having rates so low right now, that the central banks will be caught up and they'll be forced to hike rates in the future, which has driven long end government bond yields higher. Yeah. Right. So um, we've seen like you have a yield curve and basically that yield curve has seen the long end yields really push higher. So anyone who has had fixed rate risk in their portfolios or interest rate duration um, has actually, you know, really suffered, particularly in the month of February. Yeah. Um, and you can sort of understand that with cash rates being at their effective lower bound now, 
the risk is not for rates to move lower. The rate, the risk is actually rates move higher. So you need to think about that. And obviously the market um, has been very, very cautious about this, including the equity market, right? Because we've seen equity markets sell off. Um, and that's because, you know, one of the inputs into, you know, the equity discounted cash flow models is that 10 year rate. Yeah. Um, and so if that 10 year rate is higher, the denominator on that discounted cash flow model is going to be bigger and therefore your present value is going to be lower. Yeah. yeah. Um, can, and a lot of the stuff you said then would have left a lot of people for dead, but that's what you're good at, showing people how smart you are. But the, the bottom line, um, Ying Yi, is, and I think the people ask this question is, yeah, is the bond market probably getting ahead of itself um, too quickly? Or is the stock market overreacting to the fact that 10-year bond yields are going up? Like, who doesn't think there's going to be lots of growth and inflation is going to be much higher in 10 years' time? That's unbelievably logical. But the flip side is, you know, I know you're not a stock market expert, but you, hmm. you, you, you do understand the seriousness of interest rate rises and inflation. And do you suspect deep down that maybe the stock market is overreacting to what is logical, all this stuff that 10-year rates would go up? Well, I don't think the stock market knows really right now. I mean, the stock market seems to be watching um, the bond market and how people are positioned there. Um, look, it doesn't, you know, yields have moved higher, like the yields moved higher overnight before um, the US chair, uh, Fed chair Powell spoke, um, and then they backed off lower. Mm. So even the bond market's not completely sort of convinced um, at the moment. And, you know, even though the RBA is quite clear in their communication, the ECB has commuted to sort of QE, so i.e. they're not hiking rates any sort of time soon. Um, you know, that we're, we're still sort of driven by the US market. It is that there is a lot of global sort of influences. Um, so at the end of the day, I think there could still be a bit of volatility to come. Yeah. But um, I, that's definitely not very clear. Yeah, yeah, but can I also ask this question? Because a lot of people who don't understand you know, the, the power of the bond market and the power of the central bank, for example, the Fed. Can the Fed, in a sense, by buying lots of bonds, can they actually, and getting that money and putting it in the economy, can they slow down the, the expectation of the bond market that's pushing yields up quicker than a lot of people expected and that's had a negative impact on the stock market. So can the, can the, the you know the old saying, don't fight the Fed, can the mm. Fed, can the Fed you know, muscle the bond market for, for a period of time? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, the Fed and like other or like central banks, yeah. you know, the ECBE, like, sorry, excuse me, the ECB made a very strong commitment to, you know, quantitative easing and the Fed could do the same. Yeah. Um, so committing to QE, um, or for example, you know, like in Australia, we've done yield curve control. So out to three years, we've anchored, we're saying that rates should be anchored at least for the next three years out to, you know, 0.1%, you know, that is provide sort of guidance for the market. Um, but the concern really is beyond that, right? The concern is now at the longer end. So people mm. aren't concerned about the next three years. But as you know, market gets smart, right? Market's way ahead of it. So yeah. they're already thinking in 10 years time. Um, and so, you know, I would, all I would say is that you need to 
take caution um, and the types of things that you probably don't want in your portfolio necessarily, obviously without giving you a hump financial advice, Peter, is that you need to be very cautious about having any interest rate duration in your fixed income portfolio. Yeah. I, I, what it means for equities is still, you know, obviously a bit murky. Obviously, you know, if you have very high growth sort of equities, then even a higher sort of um, discount rate will still affect you, but, you know, maybe it's enough to sort of offset that. Um, right now, you want to stay liquid and you want to be invested in, you know, safe sort of securities that don't have any interest rate duration. So you want to be in floating rate securities or, you know, a, a portfolio that hedges out any fixed rate risk. Yeah. So you guys play floating rates, so you haven't been a part of the bloodbath. No, we haven't. So in February, um, just as a guide, the a, a very popular fixed income bond benchmark, the Osborne Composite Bond Index, was down about, um, just off the top of my head, it was down about 3.6%, um, and it had its worst month in 31 years. Yeah. Um, our portfolios were actually up in the month of February, so we had positive returns. And that comes down to the fact that, firstly, we didn't have any interest rate duration in our portfolios. But even if you look at the Osborne FRN index, which is another benchmark that has no interest rate duration risk, that was still down two basis points in the month of February. Hmm. So no interest rate risk, but it was still down. Um, you know, whereas the returns that we generated range from you know, range all the way up to like one half percent for some of our strategies. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't mind you guys showing off how good you are because you do <laughs> run the Switzer High Yield Fund. Uh, so, uh, Ying Yi, thanks for joining us in the program. Talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you, Peter.